As a reminder, as a patron, you get access to ad-free episodes along with patron-only episodes. And if you subscribe just a little more a month, you get access to True Crime Fan Club Prime. A monthly episode is released based on the topic of your choosing. So head on over to patreon.com slash tcfcpodcast to learn more. Join me for a special Get Vocal where I speak with author Rachel Monroe, who wrote the book Savage Appetites, True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. If you join us on Get Vocal on July 7th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time, you can enter for a chance to win a copy of her book. The link's going to be in the show notes, and I hope to see you there. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. It's like a scene from a 90s movie. A mild-mannered CIA agent is arrested for espionage as he waited for his flight to Switzerland. The agent makes a case that he only did it to support his family, but from his federal prison cell continues the scheme. He drags friends and relatives into his crimes until he is caught again, and the world is left wondering if this is really the last that we'll hear from him. But this isn't the plot from a movie. It's real life. On November 16, 1996, the CIA closed in on one of their own, someone they had been investigating for a year. Harold James Nicholson was taken into custody and became the highest-ranking CIA officer to be charged with espionage. After his arrest and conviction, he continued to communicate with foreign intelligence, leading one of his family members to join him in court. Okay, on with the show. Harold James Nicholson was born in Woodburn, Oregon on November 17, 1950. He went by the nickname Jim from a young age. Jim married and had three children, Jeremiah, Astralina, and Nathaniel. By the mid-1990s, Jim and his wife were in the middle of a messy divorce and custody battle that resulted in Jim gaining sole custody of the children. Jim enlisted in the U.S. Army where he rose to the rank of captain. At the age of 29, Jim joined the CIA and he took the oath of office two years later. His position allowed him top-secret security clearance, and he was often privy to highly sensitive information. Jim was required to sign documents acknowledging that he would never share the information contained in the papers without express permission from the CIA. During his time working for the CIA, Jim was sent to work overseas on multiple occasions. The 1980s saw him working all over Asia. He was stationed in Manila, Bangkok, and Tokyo, where he held non-disclosed positions within the CIA. In the 90s, he was stationed in Romania for two years, where he held the position of CIA chief of station before being moved back to Asia. Specifically, he was in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, where he worked as a deputy chief of station and operations officer for two years. He was finally sent back to the United States in 1994. Jim was offered a position at the CIA Training Center in the Eastern District of Virginia. Keen to put roots down for the first time in over 10 years, he purchased a house in Burke, Virginia, not far from where he was working. The three-story townhouse was big enough for Jim and his three children, 
In mid-1996, Nicholson was appointed the branch chief at the Counterterrorism Center in Langley, Virginia. Before he was even assigned to the Counterterrorism Center, Jim was popping up on the CIA's radar. Polygraphs were common and used as part of routine checks on employees. Jim was no different, and he was required to take the test from time to time. On October 16, 1995, during a routine security update, Jim submitted to a polygraph test. That test flagged high deception on two questions regarding involvement and contact with foreign intelligence. Another test was administered on October 20th, and the results showed the same high deception for similar questions. On December 4th, Jim had yet another polygraph where he once again showed high deception on questions about foreign intelligence, although not as high as on the first two tests. The difference in deception levels could be explained by the deep breaths Jim appeared to be taking when answering the control questions, perhaps in an attempt to skew his baseline. The examiner noticed the deep breaths and instructed Jim to stop and to breathe normally throughout the test. Jim complied. Based on the results of the polygraphs, the CIA took a closer look at Jim's work history, personal travel, and bank accounts. The first time an unexplained large sum of money appeared in Jim's bank account was in June 1994. Jim was stationed in Kuala Lumpur, and records show that he had met with Russian intelligence officers on at least four occasions in 1994. The meetings were no secret. In fact, they were disclosed and approved by the CIA. His last recorded meeting with the Russian intelligence in Kuala Lumpur was on June 29th, and the next day, 12,000 US dollars was transferred into the bank account he held with a credit union in Eugene. A week later, Jim finished his assignment and went back to the United States to begin his next position in Virginia. In late 1994, Nicholson applied for leave for the purpose of personal travel. The leave was approved and he left the United States on December 9th, headed for the UK, India, Thailand, and Malaysia. He planned on being away over the holiday period. While it may seem odd for a middle-aged married man with three children to travel to these locations over the holidays, Jim was in the middle of a divorce and he may not have had the option to spend the festive season with his family. While in Kuala Lumpur, Jim wired $9,000 into his Eugene bank account and made a $6,000 payment onto his credit card. Upon arriving back in the U.S., the cash kept flowing. Nicholson went to his credit union with over $13,000 in $100 bills and paid off his car loan and made a substantial payment towards another credit card. After a month away in Asia in mid-1995, Jim once again returned to the U.S. with a large amount of money, this time totaling over $23,000. He made payments and deposits into his own accounts as well as accounts he had joint ownership with one of his children. A 12-day trip to Bangkok in December 1995 was followed by nearly $27,000 appearing in Nicholson's accounts. The CIA's interest in Jim heightened when he was heard asking for information that he was not required to have, the same information that a Russian liaison officer had requested a month earlier and was denied access to. Shortly after this incident, Jim flew to Singapore for another personal trip. 
This time, the CIA suspected that he might be carrying classified documents or other information with him, and a surveillance team was arranged. A search of Jim's checked bags was conducted. However, there was no opportunity to search his camera bag, which he took as his carry-on. In Singapore, Jim checked into a $300 a night hotel room at the Shangri-La Hotel. Not outrageously expensive, but while Jim was only earning $73,000 a year and was in the middle of a costly divorce, it was on the pricey side. Jim was aware he could be being watched, and he did what is called a surveillance detection run. During a four-hour period, he walked around Singapore with his camera bag. The surveillance team saw him retracing his steps and using shop windows to check his surroundings, as well as other counter-surveillance techniques that Jim had learned from his time in the CIA. Later that same day, Jim and his camera bag left the hotel again and completed part of the same route as earlier, this time ending at a subway station at 7.15 p.m. Jim had no intention of catching a train. He joined the crowd of people but did not follow them down to the lower level to catch the train. Instead, he moved around the station. First, he sat by a taxi stand. Then, he moved back to the main area of the station, where he was approached by an unknown male. The two men walked to a car that pulled into a taxi stand, and Jim put his camera bag in the trunk before he sat in the back seat. The car was registered to the Russian embassy, and unlike the meetings in Kuala Lumpur, the CIA had not approved these meetings. When Jim checked out of the Shangri-La a few days later, he paid his $1,600 bill with cash. He also stopped in at an American Express Travel Service Center, where he paid over $8,000 off his balance. Once again, with cash, before arriving at the airport in time to board a flight to Bangkok. After staying only a few days in Bangkok, Jim flew to Honolulu with a woman who he later told the CIA was his romantic partner whom he intended to marry. During the trip to Bangkok and Honolulu, $20,000 was spent or deposited by Nicholson and another $12,000 was given to one of his sons to buy a car. Once he was back in the U.S., Jim started working at the Counterterrorism Center. He was actively applying for overseas roles and was repeatedly unsuccessful. While at the counterterrorism center, searches were performed on his computer, and they showed that Jim often searched CIA databases using the keywords Russia and Chechnya, neither of which were necessary for his position. He had set up an alert so any documents with those keywords would be sent right to his computer, and from there he could print them out. Jim also tried to access databases that he was not privy to, ones which contained information on Russia. The CIA labeled Jim as a surfer. On August 1st, Jim posted a letter addressed to a foreign post office box. The CIA intercepted the letter, which read, Dear JF, just want to let you know that unfortunately I will not be your neighbor as expected. Priorities at the home office resulted in my assignment to the management position here. Some travel to your general vicinity to visit field offices will occur, but not for more than a few days at a time. Still, the work at the home office should prove very beneficial. I know you would find it very attractive. I look forward to a possible ski vacation this winter. We'll keep you informed. Until then, your friend.
Neville R. Strachey. P.S. I am fine. There was a return address, but when the CIA followed up at the address, they found, of course, that no one called Neville Strachey lived there. In fact, no one by that name lived in the state of Virginia. There were other strange things about the letter, such as there being far too much postage applied and the postcode being incorrect. It was assumed that letter was intended for Jim's handlers, with the foreign post office box being a pickup point for correspondence and was an update on his job position. He had not gotten the overseas jobs he had applied for and was instead working at CIA headquarters. The CIA obtained search warrants for Jim's cars, and that search was carried out on August 11, 1996. Inside the car, there was evidence of Jim's cash spending, as well as a personal laptop computer. The laptop had once contained classified documents. However, they had been deleted and needed to be recovered. It was assumed that since they had been deleted, they had already been copied and given to Jim's handlers in Russia. Once the analysis had been completed and the files restored, the full scope of Jim's crimes emerged. It appeared that he gave his handlers information about every CIA agent that was trained over the two-year period leading up to his arrest and information about CIA informants and secrets that were critical to the defense of the nation at the time. As a result, multiple agents had to be reassigned and their future assignments were impacted since their identities being a secret was critical for the success of their missions. The CIA spent the next two months building their case and collecting even more evidence. Electronic surveillance on his desk showed Jim photographing documents and requisitioning photography equipment that his job did not require. In early October, Jim was planning an overseas business trip to attend meetings in Europe. Instead of traveling with colleagues who were also attending the meetings, Jim informed the CIA that he would travel alone via Zurich, Switzerland. He then posted another letter to the foreign post office box that read, Hello, old friend. I hope it is possible that you will be my guest for a ski holiday this year on 23 through 24 November. A bit early, but it would fit my schedule nicely. I am fine and all is well. Hope you are the same and can accept my invitation. Best regards, Neville R. Strachey. P.S. The snow should be fine by then. The CIA deduced that this letter was informing his handlers that he would be in Switzerland and would meet them on the 23rd and 24th of November. Aware they were running out of time before Jim's November 16th flight, the CIA arranged a secret search of Jim's house. It could not be a thorough search, as it was important that Jim did not know it had happened. The CIA agents had limited time and had to ensure the house was exactly as they had found it. Due to the constraints of the search, nothing of use was found. A search of his office two weeks later found numerous documents about Russia, most of which related to how the U.S. would defend itself, none of which related to Jim's job. The evidence had been gathered, the warrants had been issued, and now the CIA just needed to wait. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. On November 16, 1996, Jim was at Dulles Airport for his flight to Zurich. 
He was intercepted at the airport, taken into custody and charged with espionage and conspiracy to commit espionage. A search of his camera bag found 74 photos of classified documents that he intended to share at the prearranged meeting in Zurich. Jim was indicted on November 21st on one count of conspiracy to commit espionage. If an espionage case meets certain criteria, the defendant can face the death penalty. However, the criteria was not met in this case, so if Jim was found guilty, he faced life in prison. In response to Jim's arrest, the CIA and FBI released a joint statement that covered some of the details of the case alongside information about reforms that were being made in response to the arrest. These reforms were designed so that the CIA could better detect espionage in its early stages before it became a matter of national security as it did with Jim. These reforms included more FBI presence in the CIA to keep the organization accountable, as well as increased training and counter-espionage measures. The CIA wanted to avoid a trial. They did not want to be in a position where national secrets would be revealed to the public. Instead, the CIA and Jim's lawyers came to an agreement and a plea deal was arranged. In exchange for a guilty plea, all of Jim's assets and a complete debrief of what was shared, Jim had a chance to once again live as a free man. As a gesture of good faith, Jim informed investigators about Swiss bank accounts that held more money. When all was said and done, Jim had received over $300,000 from Russia over a period of two years in exchange for U.S. government secrets. Jim entered his guilty plea on March 3, 1997, at a federal court in Virginia. He was held in custody awaiting his June 5th sentencing hearing. As a part of his plea deal, Jim submitted to another polygraph test. This time, the questions related to the information he shared with the Russian government. The CIA wanted assurance that the information that Jim had given them was complete and true. While there was deception detected when answering one question, the CIA was confident that he wasn't withholding important information from them. At sentencing, Jim addressed the court and said that he did what he did for his children, aged 18, 15, and 12, to give them a better life and to make up for all the time he spent away from them when they were younger. He asked for his children to forgive him before adding that he would not ask his CIA colleagues for forgiveness, since he knew they could never give it. Despite a request for leniency from Jim's lawyer, the judge sentenced him to 23 and a half years in federal prison. Once released, Jim would face five years of supervision. The judge recommended that the sentence be served at a prison in Jim's home state of Oregon, and Jim was moved to the Federal Correctional Institution in Sheridan, Oregon. Jim's children moved to Oregon, too, and moved in with their paternal grandparents. Ordinarily, that would be the end of this episode. I would say that Jim served his sentence and did his time. He would be released. He was released in 2017 at the age of 66 and became a doting grandfather who had interesting stories to tell at Thanksgiving. Part of Jim's plea agreement included agreeing to not have further contact with foreign intelligence and agreeing to inform the CIA if any contact was made with him or any of his family members. Jim gave written consent for the CIA to monitor his contact and review his mail while he was in prison. In order to continue his contact with Russian intelligence, he had to find someone else to help him, and it couldn't be someone outside the prison because that contact was monitored. The CIA was not, however, 
monitoring Jim's interactions with people inside the prison, like his cellmates. While in prison, Jim asked his cellmates for help with contacting Russian intelligence. One cellmate used his connection with a pen pal, who happened to work at a legal firm. The cellmate was able to send mail to his pen pal and mark it as legal correspondence so that it would be considered privileged and it wouldn't be read. Once, the mail included a fake driver's license that the cellmate wanted sent to his mother. Another time, it was a movie script he wanted sent to his brother in Italy. The pen pal eventually came to visit the cellmate in prison, and during that visit, the cellmate pointed out Jim and said that he was a Russian spy who needed to get documents to Russia. The cellmate suggested using their current system, with the pen pal forwarding on the documents for Jim. The cellmate also asked his brother, who lived in Italy but was visiting the U.S., to help by taking documents with him out of the prison and delivering them to the Russian embassy. Jim knew that the embassy in Italy wasn't being thoroughly watched, and he thought it was likely that the simple plan would work. But the pen pal and brother of the cellmate rejected the idea and refused to participate. The pen pal wanted to go to the authorities, but they didn't have a name to give them. It wasn't until 18 months later, in early 2002, that they learned Jim's name and went to the FBI. In July 2003, the cellmate was interviewed by the FBI. By this time, the cellmate had been moved to a prison in Texas. He was informed that the FBI couldn't guarantee that his cooperation would benefit him or reduce his sentence, but it was a possibility. The cellmate told the FBI that Jim had been trying to give secrets to foreign governments, including Russia, while in prison, and was motivated to do so due to the information he held becoming stale and unusable in the future. Jim also told the cellmate that he planned to move to Russia upon his release to access a pension that would be available to him. The cellmate told the FBI about another cellmate that Jim had asked for help, one that was due for release and would be able to complete tasks for Jim outside the prison. The second cellmate had been asked to mail an envelope containing his memoirs to Jim's parents once he was released since all of Jim's mail was intercepted and read. The second cellmate did as Jim asked, mailing the envelope without opening it or being fully aware of the contents. In addition to using fellow inmates to transport information, Jim began to train his youngest son, Nathaniel, who was in his early 20s, to complete tasks for him. Nathaniel had joined the U.S. Army in February of 2003, but was given a medical discharge the following year after suffering a back injury. He attended a local community college and worked part-time jobs following his discharge. Even with some military benefits, he only made enough to get by. While Jim's other children stayed in contact with him, Nathaniel's contact was the most regular. In 2006, Jim started contacting Nathaniel more frequently, and the letters appeared to encourage Nathaniel to work on Jim's behalf. By December 2006, Nathaniel was actively communicating with Russian intelligence. He traveled to Mexico City on two occasions, and when he returned, small cash deposits started appearing in his bank accounts. Nicholson had told his son to keep the cash deposit small and always under $500, $100 here and there so as not to arouse suspicion. After the first two trips, deposits were made totaling nearly $3,000. Nathaniel also started helping his siblings financially around this time, something he was not able to do with his part-time wages and military benefits. The CIA suspected that Nathaniel was working on behalf of his father and was collecting money from foreign intelligence agencies, 
in exchange for top-secret information that Jim still had in his head. Nathaniel's home, movements, and accounts were monitored by the CIA as evidence was gathered for an arrest warrant. After another trip to meet Russian intelligence, this time to Peru, Nathaniel was subjected to additional questioning at the airport when he arrived back in the U.S. During the search, Homeland Security found over $7,000 in cash in Nathaniel's possession. Not only was this a different amount to what he had declared, but he also had no logical explanation for having such a large amount of cash. He claimed to have maxed out his credit cards and only traveled with cash that he had saved from his military benefits. However, a check on his account showed that he never had that much money in his account. Also in Nathaniel's possession were various business cards, credit cards, and debit cards, including a card with the Russian embassy's Mexico City address written on the back. A notebook was also found, and it included details of meetings between Nathaniel and Russian intelligence, and plans for further meetings later in the year. Finally, the CIA had everything they needed, and Nathaniel was arrested and charged with conspiracy, acting as agents of a foreign government and money laundering. On January 29, 2009, Nathaniel was arraigned in the U.S. District Court of Portland. His grandparents, who were suspected of also being part of the scheme, were shocked at the arrest. Jim appeared in court with Nathaniel to face his own charges, conspiracy to commit an act as an agent of a foreign government and international money laundering. On August 28, 2009, Nathaniel made a deal. He agreed to plead guilty to his charges and testify against his father in exchange for a lighter sentence. In December of 2010, Nathaniel Nicholson was sentenced to five years probation, meaning he would not serve any jail time for assisting with his father's crimes. In November of 2010, Jim pled guilty to his charges and awaited sentencing. While he faced a maximum sentence of 25 years in prison and $750,000 in fines, he once again made a plea deal which recommended a maximum sentence of eight years that would be served consecutively to his existing sentence. At sentencing, the judge handed down the suggested eight-year sentence. Jim, who was only a few short years away from being released, would now be in prison until he was in his mid-70s. At the time of this recording, Harold James Nicholson is in federal prison. He is due to be released in 2025. He will be 75 years old and will have spent nearly 30 years in prison. Nathaniel Nicholson has not appeared in any court or media documents and appears to have kept out of trouble during and after his probation. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and positively review the show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us out. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast. You can also find us on Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod. And of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. And don't forget to join me on Get Vocal every Thursday at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time to talk about the latest in true crime. This episode was researched and written by Jessica Ann, with additional research and content editing provided by Brittany Martinez. 
This episode of True Crime Fan Club was produced by Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkofDreams.com.